Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech, a podcast mapping out the Swiss and global fintech scene, connecting fintech enthusiasts with startups, incubators, accelerators, business angels and VCs, and incumbents interested in partnerships. Voice of Fintech will help you navigate the fintech ecosystem. Here you can listen to the startup founder stories, what investors and incumbents are looking for when dealing with startups, and find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. My name is Rudy Fallad and I'll be hosting this podcast. Hello and welcome to Voice of Fintech. Today we're going to travel from Switzerland to Northern California. And that's not because this winter apparently they had more snow in California than we did in Switzerland, but because we want to learn more about fintech investing from an experienced investor, uh, Itamar from Recursive Ventures, because there is always something you can learn from investors, how they think about things, especially when we are headed for tougher times, right? We have a difficult situation in many parts of the world when it comes to energy, war, post-COVID, inflation, cost of living crisis. And now it starts to trickle down financial institutions as well, investments and valuations of companies. So how does that all impact the outlook of fintech companies when they are raising funding, when they are trying to still grow and scale up? All of this we can cover with Itamar. So welcome. How are you today? First of all, Rudy, thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm doing well. Can you describe yourself? How did you get to do what you do today? What was your journey to be a VC fintech investor? Absolutely. So I've been in startups for the last 20 years or so, and I've been on all sides of the table. I've been the founder and executive. I've been an angel investor, and I've been an institutional VC. As an operator and founder, I've recently helped take Life360 all the way from pre-seed to IPO. And as an investor, I was first trained as an institutional VC on Sand Hill Road at Morgan Terra Ventures. And later, I founded uh, Upwest Labs, which is an incubator that helps bridge the gap between Israel and in the US. And more recently, in the last 10 years, I've been running recursive ventures. And a significant piece of recursive ventures focus has been investing in financial services, insurance, and real estate markets and companies disrupting those markets. All right, great. So maybe let's explain the name as well, recursive. That's quite interesting. And for once, also original, no? <laughs> Hopefully, yes. For folks who have had the opportunity to learn a bit about computer science, a recursion is a type of, of data structure or an algorithm in computer science that's used to crunch data in various ways. And it's a little bit of a geeky name. And I think my founders, most of my founders are a little bit geeky. Of course, it's tech companies and they're building unique machine learning and data capabilities. So it's a nice name to have for that segment of the market. I see. All right. And you're based in San Francisco or Bay Area? Correct. I am okay. in the San Francisco Bay Area, and we have not seen this much rainfall for over a decade. So an interesting winter we have here. I see. All right. Okay. Hope you keep keeps dry and safe. Now, can you describe your focus? What is the focus of recursive ventures? We talk about tech and technology, so that's a little bit obvious, but can you elaborate on this? 
Absolutely. The main thesis for recursive ventures, which I should note is not the only type of investment that we would do, but it is the majority of investments in the fund, circle around the thesis of leveraging unique data assets and machine learning capabilities to disrupt incumbents and antiquated services in financial services, insurance, and real estate. So my fund is really about how to leverage data, automation, and AI to make financial services better. So let's focus then also on geographic limitations you have. Are you focusing only on the US or North America or are you global? You mentioned Israel and the US connection. How does that work? Yeah, absolutely. So Recursive Ventures would invest in in a company that's based anywhere. We live in a remote first world, and I'm also one of the first investors in Deal, which enables anybody to work from anywhere. Me and the rest of the team, we strongly believe in innovation happening around the globe. With that said, we invest in companies where the primary market that the companies focus on is in the U.S. because that's really where our network is, where our capabilities lie, and where we can help companies most. I've I've recently made an investment in an Estonian company. Of course, we make investments in, in, in Israeli companies, and we would invest anywhere around the globe as long as the talent is there and the products are built for the U.S. market. All right. And you said you've been doing this for 10 years. So how much money are we talking about? How big is the fund and or how much money you've raised since inception? And how many startups have you funded already? Yeah, excellent question. So Recursive Ventures is a pre-seed investor. That means that we write the first check into a company almost as soon as inception. Sometimes we even commit to supporting companies before they're being formed because we know we're investing in the right people. Because of that, our check sizes are relatively small, half a million dollars or so. And over the last decade, we've been able to invest in over 50 companies and have over $25 million under management in the fund. All right. So pre-seed, maybe half a million check. All right. I get that. By the way, a side question when it comes to stats, like to invest in 50 companies over 10 years, how many did you look at? Oh, that must have been thousands. And and what I typically tell folks interested in the fund is that we get at least 20 qualified leads a week. And a qualified lead for us means that we are looking at a deal that has been sent to us by somebody we trust and know, and we think that they know what they're doing. And they're sending us a company that's in the appropriate stage. So at inception, very early on, pre-seed, and and with, with strong founders. And typically, even though we get 20 of these a week, which is quite a bit to crunch through, we would probably do a deal every other month. That it means that we have to say no many times over. It's not always the easiest thing to do. But of course, this is a business and we've got to support the stronger, strongest founders. Then you talked about pre-seed. So that means really pre-revenue, maybe even pre-product. Would you just give a half a million to somebody with the PowerPoint deck? or And if yes, then how would you feel comfortable that they can deliver? Absolutely. We do write half a million dollar checks on PowerPoint decks. And we have been doing that for a very long time. But I know it sounds almost very magical. But the reality is that it's a little bit more nuanced than that. So first and foremost, over 40% of recursive ventures investments are with repeat entrepreneurs that have proven to be able to operate well in the market that they're operating in. 
that's the first thing. The second thing is we're looking for folks that have unique insights, have proven track record as operators. Even if they haven't started a company before, they've probably been involved in the success of one or more startup companies in the past and can really talk about what they've been able to build as part of a startup team early on in the journey. Further, we're looking for leaders and founders that have unique capabilities in the space that they're operating in. We're looking for the top people in in that market that really have the network, the know-how, and sometimes often even unfair advantage in the spaces that they're focused on. And when we see opportunities like that, we're very happy to be the first investor and invest on a PowerPoint because it's really part of the model for the fund. All right. So you answer most of my questions I would have about investment approach, but let's also think about the fact that, all right, if you invest in someone pre-seed, they may need a few rounds until they are they really made it or they went public or whichever way you define success. But pre-seed funds, they need to tap out at some point, right? So uh, would you coin follow do follow on investments in the A round as well, C and A round, etc. Or when do you leave the company and let other to step in instead? Absolutely, we continue to support the co- our companies all the way to Series A with prorata follow on investments. So because we are pre seed investors, you would see us participate in the institutional seed round that follows us. And you'd often see us participate in the institutional, of course, Series A that would follow that. Of course, funding comes in all shapes and forms these days. I see founders continuously fundraising for two years and raising five different rounds to get to a much bigger Series A. And you'd see us supporting those companies along the way. Beyond the Series A, uh, Recursive sometimes forms syndicates led by our limited partners to keep supporting companies in the B and even in the C as they scale. And you know, we can talk more about model and where venture capitalists kind of win. And a lot of it is really being able to double down on winners in the portfolio and keep funding them so that our position would not get eroded over time as more and more funds come into the business. And you mentioned that you like serial entrepreneurs. You get a lot of qualified leads as well, unique or unfair advantage, right? So all of these techniques or let's say positive biases relate to de-risking and find people who can deliver more than more likely than others. But what about first-time founders? If you were to meet a first-time founder with the deck, they have a great idea. What would be some of the best tips you can give them how to take it further? Yeah, just to clarify, if 40% of our investments are in repeat entrepreneurs, that means 60% of our investments are not with repeat entrepreneurs. Good point. All right. All right. We definitely fund first time founders. And I think there's a couple of things. First of all, I really, for me as a founder, I've been a founder myself. It is really important for me to validate my ideas and my thinking for myself before I even bother to try to validate that with investors. Time is money and time is of essence. And I want to make sure as a founder that I spend my time on the right set of problems, right? That I can actually solve and make an impact in. So before you go out and try to prove something to VCs, go out and try to get conviction yourself. That is the first tip. And if you have conviction, 
believe me, it will show and you will know that you're doing the right thing. You're not always 100% sure, but you have conviction and that matters, right? It matters for the long journey ahead where there's going to be ups and downs. You're now is going to be at the top, but if you're working on the right problem and you believe in the problem and you have a team that believes in you and solving that problem, you have a much higher likelihood of getting there. So that's the first thing. The second thing that I'd say that a lot of VCs speak about, and I think it's it's fair, it's important to think about it that way, is TAM, Total Addressable Market. Not all businesses are actually great as a venture-backed business raising money from VCs. And to be clear, that's 100% okay. Most businesses don't need to be venture-backed, and they can still make tons of money and make a huge impact on, on the business environment they operate in. But in order to build a venture-backed business and take money from VCs, you really have to be aiming at a massive market, and you should validate that with actual numbers. The issue is, if you take VC money and you end up not going after a massive market, you would be misaligned with your VCs. You'd be misaligned with your board members. And that, of course, can be devastating for a company, right? So... It's before you take VC money, think long and hard on whether the problem space and the size of the market that you address is actually a great fit for venture capital or not. So I like your point about conviction, right? You need to be convinced that this is the right kind of problem. This is the right kind of solution. But also, I would translate them maybe a bit more sarcastically into another description where maybe you figure out the problem, but for VCs, it has to be a problem that is worth solving, right? That it's worth solving. Otherwise, if it's too small, it's three people who have that problem. How can you make 10 times money out of it, right? Rudy, it sounds like you you can explain this better than I can. <laughs> Absolutely. you. No, are it's just product. really, is it worth solving or not? It's very nice that it's a problem. I know that. I see it also in a lot of corporate innovation initiatives. The three people, they have this problem, we need an automation tool, all right, that costs $10 million to build, and you save 10% of the salary of those people, you will never ever get the money back, right? Not to mention 10 times. Yeah, absolutely. And there are many mistakes in this area. One mistake that sometimes founders do is they look at reports around market size that are top down that says, oh, this market is $80 billion annually, but they don't always do the eyes to figure out what their addressable market is bottoms up and doing a simple calculation of, oh, wow, if I succeed 10 years from now, I'll have X number of customers and their willingness to pay is going to be Y, X times Y equals Z. What is that Z? There are quite a few founders that don't go through that thought process. And I think that that doesn't help them to, going back to my first point, validate that they're going for a big enough problem that does require VC backing. Great point. Great advice. Moving on, I wanted to ask you also a little bit about the outlook. Everybody would like to have a crystal ball. Not many of us have it at home, right? But if you have a crystal ball, you ask it, what's the outlook for fintechs? Where are the biggest or the most promising opportunities? Because you've been at this for quite some time and there were some subsectors that showed a lot of promise and maybe they didn't even get to plateau, a plateau part of the hype curve. And some did and some are still here. 
where do you think we are headed going forward when it comes to fintech and the themes within fintech? Rudy, I'm surprised. You don't have a crystal ball? No, because I would break it. I'm a bit clumsy. I have one here next to me, and I'm really happy to tap it. No, not really. But I'd say one thing that VCs are good about is making predictions. And 50% of the time they're right, 50% of the time they're wrong. Take it with a grain of salt. But I'd say for me, for the area that I'm focused about, I've never been more excited about some of the company building opportunities in front of us. We've gone through what I call three major eras of innovation in fintech. The first one, the first wave has really been about digitizing financial services, right? Moving from pen and paper to computers and moving online and being able to distribute financial products and services across the web and across mobile. And we've seen massive innovation starting with the 80s and 90s and going on until today in that first wave. Then we moved into the second wave, which was very dominant and still is in the from 2010 and beyond. We've seen the rise of crypto. That's, of course, still under ongoing, and there's going to be so much innovation in that space. We've seen new types of sort of business models and new approaches to fintech happening. I call that the first, the second wave, where basically entrepreneurs are restructuring, rethinking the models, the underlying models behind financial services, coming up with completely new lending ideas and approaches, completely new ways of doing remittance over crypto, for example, and then so on and so forth, which is amazing, this second wave, and we're still in the midst of it. There is so much more to do. The third wave is the one that I'm mostly focused on and is happening as we speak. And that is the wave that is all about leveraging data assets and machine learning capabilities to significantly reduce the cost and significantly increase the quality of financial services provided, make, helping us make better investments and making us better make better portfolio management decisions. So we've got some very disruptive trends ongoing in this industry as we speak. Of course, there's open banking out there, and that's a huge driver. When you think about the world 10 years ago, before Plaid, before Yodli, before all of these guys, you really wouldn't be able to access data at all, right? Not digitally, and definitely not in a semi-real-time fashion. Now, suddenly with open banking, Everything is interoperable. Everything is you tap into data. You can push transactions into the system just with computers. And that, of course, creates many exciting opportunities. Also, now we have AI and machine learning capabilities in this space. And think about how much manual work, how much Excel spreadsheet work is still predominant in financial services. There are so many, whether it's private market or public market fund and capital uh, being managed just with Excel. And we have smart automation now kicking in, augmenting humans, making their work so much more efficient, and not less importantly, making their work more accurate. So manual, of course, can lead to mistakes and computers don't make mistakes. There are engineers that program the software could be making mistakes, so we got to make sure we're bug-free. But, you know, we have so much innovation happening all the way from the CFO office and using le- the different tools to automate treasury accounting operations, FBNA, and so on and so forth. At the same time, we have so many tools that are now being managed, used to manage portfolios 
whether it's real estate, whether it's private equity and debt and so on and so forth. And this is all really, really new. You know, we haven't had those capabilities even a year or two ago. So AI is really driving quite a bit of things in this space. And a lot of the manual work is being handed over to the machines. So us humans, we can really think about what's next and really solve the tough problems that our minds are capable of solving and the machine is not capable of solving yet. Absolutely. Well said. Now, that maybe is a nice segue to my next question. And this is your opportunity to brag. Can you tell us about some of your success stories from your portfolio and maybe link it to the trend analysis you just mentioned, whether that relates to automation, AI, open banking, any of the trends that you mentioned just now? Absolutely. So I'd love to talk about a few of my groundbreaking portfolio companies here. Let me start by one that's one of my favorites. They're all my favorites, but this one is dear to my heart because I love real estate. One of my portfolio companies is a company called Cherry based in New York. And what they do is they provide the singular source of truth for any real estate on the planet, whether it's residential or commercial. If you look at real estate data, it's actually very inconsistent and not necessarily very high quality. For example, you are if you try to determine the square foot of a home somewhere, an apartment, let's say in New York, you could have Zillow give you one number and the city would give you another number and the bank would give you a third number. And how do you know which one is true? Cherry knows because what they do is they leverage machine learning to understand which data sources provide the most accurate data for this type of information. And through that, they can basically take multiple real estate data sources and basically build the source of truth around real estate. That is, of course, a massive innovation for REITs, for family offices investing in real estate, for insurance companies underwriting mortgages using data, and so on and so forth. I envision a world where everybody who's dealing with real estate is using Cherry because you want to know the true data around this particular property before you make a decision to invest, to manage, to sell, and so on and so forth. Absolutely. Um, I like the single source of truth. Go for that, Mark. Go for it. Yeah, I'll give you another one. And there's so many so excited about all the innovation happening now. Another company that I'm really excited about is a company called Brightflow. Brightflow, what they do is they work with e-commerce companies on top of Shopify and on top of Amazon Merchant Services. And many of those e-commerce companies, they can't really, they're not big enough to afford having a CFO in place. So they don't really know the of, lifeblood of their business, which is cash flow. How much cash would I have a month from now, three months from now? Cash flow is really one of the most important pieces of building an e-commerce business because you really have to tightly manage inventory. You have to understand the forecast around what type of orders you would have and how you can best meet them. So what Brightflow does is they plug into your um, your Shopify and your Amazon Merchant Services and added other data sources that that your company and platforms your company your e-commerce company leverages, and they automatically create a financial dashboard for you as if you've had a CFO, even though you don't have it. So you know what is your forecast income statement. What is your cash flow going to be in the next six months and so on and so forth? So it's a wonderful service that really helps e-commerce businesses expand and build a stable business. On top of that, Rightflow is also a lender. 
because they have so much information about how your business is being ran, how what was the past, and also they have a forecast on what was the future. They have way more information than any lender could have. And based on that, can underwrite a loan for your e-commerce business with much less risk, higher accuracy, and make sure the loan product you receive is actually a good fit for your business. So this is the next generation of lending, lending that's based on having all the data around your operations as as a company that receives debt and really being able to work very closely with your customer to make sure they receive the right product that helps them grow their business. All right, but let's keep it balanced as well. Do you have any lessons learned that you would have done differently as an investor? Maybe you missed something. Maybe you were disappointed by someone or you wish you negotiated differently. I don't know, whatever that could be. Yeah, absolutely. We all make mistakes and I've had my share for sure. I think, and this maybe would be more sexy of an answer for investors, but something that I've learned the hard way is how to build a portfolio right. So early in my career as a pre-seed investor, I did something that's called more of a spray and pray. I would write smaller checks in many companies. And and I thought, wow, this is a great way to get exposure to the market and figure out who's doing well and who's not. What I failed to understand back then, 10 years ago, was that it would be impossible for me to keep track of what's going on within the portfolio and understand, see those early signals on which companies are potentially a breakthrough companies. And I was just so underwater with so many companies that I lost the forest from the trees. And because of that, I wasn't able to move in, double down and keep investing in some of the companies that ended up being big winners. And by doing that, I left a bunch of money on the table, essentially, because I could have invested and could have supported those companies even further. I've hopefully learned from my mistake. And these days, my funds are more focused, less companies, and having much more bandwidth to help every and each founder that I invest in to really take their company to the next level. I see. Great stuff. So dive in a bit deeper, build an expertise in the field or in the sector, right, rather than Spray and pray, as you said, right? All right. All the great stuff, great insights. Before we go, I just have two easy questions for you. One is, do you have a favorite business book or any other resource for entrepreneurs or investors that they can pick up and learn a little bit more about what we discussed today? Yeah, there's so many wonderful books out there. Just don't stop reading. But one of my favorites is The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. I think it's a great book when it comes to thinking about culture and building the right culture in a startups, in a startup, particularly during difficult times. And you know, at first glance, building the right culture and right set of values in a company doesn't feel like a priority necessarily for founders. But what I've learned over the years is that Ben Horowitz is right. Like building the right culture is absolutely critical for your success. The reason is that startups, 99.9% of them go through ups and downs. And when you're really, where your culture really shines and where you really get measured is actually in those down parts where things are hard, when you're teetering on the edge of bankruptcy and things are really hard. When you have the right culture, when you have the right people around the table, that helps you get out of the the deep mud that you might be in as a company and really go back to swing back 
to being on the upper side. Great book if you're thinking about starting a company and you want to get a better understanding of how Silicon Valley companies think about building culture, read Ben Horowitz's book. Great stuff, because this is the most popular book tip on this podcast, but we haven't had it for a while, so it's all good. We need to come back to it to remind people. Ben Horowitz, of course, a great book, Hard Thing About Hard Things. So thanks so much. Now, what would be the best way for people to reach out? And who would you like to hear from most? And what's the best way to get in touch? Yeah, so for companies, typically the best way to get to me is through somebody I know and trust and is your friend. If you know somebody that knows me who can speak highly of you, I would love to meet you because my businesses, unfortunately, I get bombarded by a lot of entrepreneurs who want to reach out. And I would love to speak to all of them, but I just don't have enough hours in the day. So the best way to get to me as an entrepreneur would be to ask for an introduction request through somebody that knows me. And in that case, I'd be happy to pick it up, talk from there. For limited partners, for investors, they can reach out directly on LinkedIn or through AngelList and so on and so forth. I am actually, it's probably solicitation, so I shouldn't say most VCs are raising funds at almost any given point in time. So I'm always happy to meet new limited partners and explore potential partnerships with them. All right. Thank you so much. And good luck to you, Itamar, and Recursive Ventures. Thank you so much. And thanks again for having me, Rudy. This has been wonderful. You have some great questions and great insights about some of these topics. And I'm really honored to be in your podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Voice of Fintech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests, or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at Happy to hear from you. Thank you.